Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Leading in Uncharted Waters with Admiral Sandy Stowes. Today, we'll discuss how professionals at every level can lead with character, purpose, and passion, especially through changing and challenging times. Our guest today is Admiral Sandy Stowes. Sandy started out in the U.S. Coast Guard as an ensign serving aboard polar icebreakers, conducting national security missions from the Arctic to the Antarctic. Her 40-year career was filled with leadership lessons gleaned while breaking ice and breaking glass as the first woman to command an icebreaker on the Great Lakes and to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy. Along the way, Sandy served for 12 years at sea, commanding two ships, and led large Coast Guard organizations during times of crisis and complexity. She was the first woman assigned as Deputy Commandant for Mission Support, directing one of the Coast Guard's largest enterprises. She's lectured widely on leadership and has been featured on C-SPAN and other media outlets. In her new book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters, Sandy provides insights and tools, tips that will help leaders navigate complexity to reach their goals and succeed at every level. Welcome, Sandy, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mary, for having me today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation and wonder if we could start out laying a little groundwork, share with us a little bit of your background and, you know, 40 years in the Coast Guard, how did you decide to even join the Coast Guard, you know, as you started out in your career? Thank you for asking that question. It's always good to start at the beginning. When I was a junior in high school in 1976, that's exactly when young people start looking at college opportunities. That same year, the National Defense Authorization Act required that the service academies open their doors to women. And those are the Naval Academy in Annapolis, West Point for the Army, Colorado Springs for the Air Force, and the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. I was living in Ellicott City, Maryland. That's where I was raised. And my neighbor brought over an article in the Baltimore Sun that featured the Naval Academy opening its doors to women. Mm. And I read that article and saw that it was a free education. You had a chance to see the world. You could go out on the water and sail. And it appealed to me, the sense of adventure. And I liked the idea this was something new that hadn't been available before. So that appealed to my sense of taking advantage of new opportunities that came along. And my guidance counselor told me, hey, you need to apply to more than one place aside from the Naval Academy. Mm. He says, I got this flyer in the mail. It's from this Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. Mm. And we both looked at the flyer and it had some small boats, some bigger boats, and we Decided between us, it must be a small Navy, which of course the Coast Guard's (laughs) not. (laughs) But I applied to the Coast Guard Academy too. And we come under a different title of the law. So under Title 14, I didn't have to go and get senatorial congressional nominations for the Coast Guard Academy, which you have to do for the Naval Academy. So I was going through that process of getting my nomination at the Naval Academy. I applied directly to the Coast Guard Academy and was accepted And my mother said, you better take that bird in the hand right now and put your money in, your deposit in. So I did. I accepted the Coast Guard Academy and never looked back. And I am so fortunate that my guidance counselor mentored me and steered me towards applying to the Coast Guard Academy because once again, the Coast Guard, once they invited women to join the academy and the officer's ranks, they opened every opportunity to women. Now, there might have been some restrictions on the limitations of birthing on cutters, 
at the time, but we were not precluded or excluded from serving at sea in aircraft, whereas my counterparts at the Naval Academy and the other service academies were excluded by combat exclusion laws that didn't allow them to serve on the front end, the pointy end of the spear. But I got to from the day that I was a Mm. cadet, I served in the Caribbean for a summer cruise on a 378-foot vessel that had weapon systems. So Mm. would have been considered a frigate style vessel like the Navy has, and I could sail on that. So I love that I wasn't told I couldn't do something because I was stubborn and didn't want to (laughs) be told you can't do this. So that's a little bit of an intro into how I um, got onto the Coast Guard Academy and how I got there. I find that so interesting because, you know, it's really rare, I think, that we know what we really want to do that far back as well. But even early days of college and university, it's it's challenging. Did you have any family that was in the service or military and anything at all? No, I didn't have anybody in my family who would So served. what did they think? They were like, great. Go for it. <laughs> my mom thought it was great. My father kind of, he's a stubborn guy too, and he kind of trying to manage my expectations and say, well, you better be, don't get your hopes up because it's hard and not everybody succeeds, which just made me want to succeed even more. Mm -hmm, But my parents mm -hmm. uh, were both happy that I was going. My parents, I was raised with three brothers. So I was the oldest of the four kids and all of us kids had the same expectation. You're all going to be hardworking. You're all going to be honest. You're all going to do the best you can. You're all going to go to college or, or do something with your lives. Mm. So there was never an expectation that I was going to be different because I was the, the girl in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that helped mm-hmm. a lot. My parents raised yes, us four kids all with the same opportunities. I think that's brilliant. And so Cindy, what else do you think it was about you that led towards your success, especially as you started out towards a 40-year incredibly successful concern and career rather, and your father's, as you said, and you said a little bit of stubbornness, but it wasn't all adventure, right? There was hard work and perseverance. (laughs) So what else maybe came into play, you know, about you character-wise, style-wise, belief-wise? Like many things in life, once you start digging into what you've chosen to do, you find out that it's a lot harder than Mm. you expected. And I knew it was going to be hard, but I came from high school where I worked hard and Mm. I had been at the top of my class and it was a fairly big high school. And I really worked hard to do well academically and with, with athletics and extracurricular. But when I got to the Coast Guard Academy, I was very average. I went from top of the class to very average because everybody who gotten accepted to the Coast Guard Academy had been an exceptional performer, (laughs) exceptional student, an athlete, a leader. And I had to work extra hard, even harder to just keep up Mm -hmm. with the, the high caliber peers I had. So I found that all throughout my childhood, I had been a hard worker and I persevered and I had never been the smartest, the fastest, the best. I'd always had to, to go on hard work and perseverance. And I always thought from a young age that I found that that leveled the playing field of life. And of course, when you're young, you don't have the same mature perspective. So looking back, certainly I realized that some of the hardships I endured there at the academy helped me realize the value of hard work and perseverance and never quitting. A lot of young people or middle grade people come into a job and they they are willing to work hard, but they're not so willing to persevere and they fall back at the first sign of opposition or resistance Mm. or obstacles they meet. Instead of plowing through them, they'll stop and maybe try a different direction. And not because they have a good reason to, just because they don't want to persevere. So I think that the combination of hard work and perseverance levels the playing field of life, which is never going to be equitable, like you hear a lot about nowadays, equality and equity. And you have to make your own success because that playing field is going to be rough and you're Mm -hmm. going to have to work hard and persevere Absolutely. And I love, you remind me of a little, there's something I do too. If someone says I can't, or there's, you know, any kind of doubt, I'm sort of a watch me kind of person. And it sounds like you have a little bit of that. Absolutely. I don't like to be told I can't do something. And I don't like anyone defining me by a characteristic. So I've Mm. never 
accepted being defined by my gender, for instance, as Mm -hmm. one of the first women. Mm -hmm. And at the Coast Guard Academy, when I went, I was the third class of women to go. Even though I found out about the Coast Guard Academy the first year it opened, they already started accepting women into that first class in 1976. I entered in 78. We were only 5% women, so not many. But I refused to be defined by my gender. And I just wanted to be a Coast Guard cadet, not a female Coast Guard cadet. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I stuck by that all throughout my career. So in that regard, did you ever think... I consciously want to break some glass here because there was some glass to break and some, you know, ceilings to knock aside. But was that ever conscious or it just happened as, you know, you succeeded and your career path, you followed it? How much was that sort of a conscious effort? It wasn't a conscious effort. In fact, I tried to outrun being the first. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. I graduated among the first women to come out of the Coast Guard Academy. And we don't you can't get ahead. So in the military, you have to promote kind of by your rank and by your time in service. So therefore, I was never going to outrun being one of the first women. So everywhere I went, I was the first woman to serve on this ship, the only woman to serve here. And I tried to outrun it. And then I realized about five or six years in, I couldn't outrun this. I may as well accept it. So what I did when I accepted the fact that I was going to be breaking glass, Mm -hmm. whether I wanted to or not, because I was always just wanting to be looked at for my professional competence, Mm -hmm. not because of the diversity Mm -hmm. I brought through my gender, I would turn all those, that attention to the Coast Guard, it's great missions and it's great people. And therefore I found satisfaction in that because I could turn the story away from me, me, me to focus it on the Coast Guard and my people. And then that always became the better part of the story, right? Because the Coast Guard's got great missions and great people. Let's talk about all the brilliant leadership lessons and tips that come through your book. You talk a lot about being a lifelong learner, and clearly that makes sense. Tell us more about this and any advice you have for how to better integrate learning into our own Mm. career journey. That's a really good question. And you hear a lot about lifelong learning. And what I would offer is that Lifelong learning is broader than most people think. I see it as a three-part opportunity. (laughs) The first is through experience. The second is through reading or listening. And the third is through continuing education. So experience is the best teacher. So if you're looking at lifelong learning, I don't necessarily mean pick up a book or go to a, a class. First and foremost, I offer and encourage people to seek experiences do something hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. I've got a blog called Leading with Character. I just started it about a month ago. My very first entry was do something hard. Mm. Because so often in our attempt to succeed, we think we should find an easier path so we don't have as big of a chance to take risks and mess up. But you're not pressing yourself to achieve your full potential. You're never going to succeed and satisfy yourself or your boss if you're picking an easy path that sub-optimizes you and your organization. So get out there and do something hard. And I'll let listeners think about that. What does that mean to you, wherever your job is? Because you're going to be in all different kinds of jobs. Second is this reading and listening. So reading books and listening to podcasts like this one. I listen to podcasts when I'm on the dreaded treadmill. (laughs) I read voraciously. And when I was young, when everybody else was watching TV, I was reading. So when I was young, I learned how to be courageous by reading about Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. I learned humility from studying the tragic hero in literature and looking at how heroes, like in Shakespeare, probably the most famous tragic hero of stories, where heroes fall, and it's always because of a character fault. And often, it goes back to humility. Mm. So I learned, or for, or for hubris, <laughs> so I learned humility from the tragic hero in literature And these are all incredibly important values, courage and humility. I learned them from reading. So I encourage everyone to look at their organization or company's reading list. If they don't have one, raise your hand and ask your boss, hey, our company doesn't have a reading list. Maybe the CEO should start one. Maybe you should start a book club or join a book club. 
try to read one book a month and it can be a novel, good classic literature. It can be one of these books on how to, how to be a better leader. I personally like deriving leadership lessons from good literature as opposed to being prescribed mm. it by somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think leadership is such a personal journey. And the third way of being a lifelong learner is certainly continuing education. And there's no excuse. A lot of companies and organizations are providing tuition assistance and there's so many online offerings. So looking to broaden yourself through education and that can take many forms. It doesn't have to be formal with a college. It can be reading professional literature aside from the book reading I talked about. So there's three areas, experience, uh, reading or podcasts, and seeking continuing higher education all contribute to lifelong learning, which is necessary if you're going to succeed. I love those three. And I I have heard, I, I don't know the exact statistic, but companies seem to be pulling back a little on the formal development and the, you know, the formal side of it in terms of, you know, the investment per employee, which broadly speaking, which is a shame. It should not stop us from finding it and investing in ourselves. But I think with what's ahead and so much changing and so many new skills to continuously develop, it sometimes takes that formal side of things too. And Mm. I think we need to be investing more than ever. I agree. I think that this COVID crisis we've experienced together speaking of experiencing, has shown that companies have to compete for talent. People are going to be looking for different satisfaction, different flexibility, and they're going to be looking for opportunities and then for companies to give them opportunities to put that, what they're learning in that lifelong learning into practice. And that's the harder part is you spend money or invest in an employee, send them off, do you ever put that back into practice to get the return on investment? Mm. And I'll give you just a little tiny example of how I put into practice what I learned. And like I said, this won't apply to everybody, but hopefully it'll spur some thought on how you, if you're an employer, can look at investing in your people and then how to ask them to practice what they've learned to give back to the company. And you as an employee, how you can practice what you've learned. But I read back in the 80s, so I'm going to go back in time, but to the One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard. Mm -hmm. And that's a book that Mm -hmm. many of us will resonate with because it's still being published today. And it had a lesson in there that I learned as a junior person. It said, walk around your office or your, I was on a ship at the time, and try to find somebody, a subordinate, catch them doing something good. Because normally we were out there and we just notice when our employees don't do something good when they screw up, right? So catch them doing something good. So I happened to read that book just before I took command of a ship. And I went on board as a new commanding officer. And one of my first nights there, I was walking around the ship, putting into practice what I learned from that one minute manager. I was going to find somebody and catch them doing something good just to kind of start my command on a positive note, at least for myself, And I found a fireman. It was after hours. I was walking around before I went home. I found a fireman, which is a junior person, just maybe 20 years old, sitting on the deck of the engine room, cleaning an oil filter or something all by himself because everybody else had gone home for the day. And I said to him, Fireman Jones, what are you doing there? And he said, oh, ma'am, nothing important. I'm just cleaning this dirty filter. So I squatted down next to him and I said, you know, if it wasn't for you cleaning that filter our ship couldn't get underway to do our mission. I said, you're doing a great job with that. Thank you. And I just got up and kept doing my rounds. Well, the next morning I'm in my room, my stateroom, we call it on a ship. And I hear this noise on the door, bang, bang, bang. It's my engineer officer. Who's a senior officer. He's my department head. He says, well, I guess you don't need me because you're getting your engineering advice from fireman Jones. So he had fireman Jones had gotten up the next morning and told everybody on the boat, His job was the most important job on the ship because Skipper, the captain, had told him that. (laughs) And so I learned, though, a lesson. Yes, put into practice what I've learned from my lifelong learning from my reading, but do it the right way. I didn't give my, my department head a heads up that I'd be walking around his engine room and maybe complimenting somebody on what they were doing. And so he was taken by surprise because it wasn't usual for the captain to go walking around the engine room. 
<laughs> so I owed it to my senior leadership team to let them know who I was and how I led so they could support me and not be undermined unintentionally by me. Intimidated. Maybe. <laughs> um, but also, I love that you sort of connected to his Jones, his job to something bigger, you know, if he said not important, well, yeah, it is. Everything everyone does is tied back to the purpose, the mission, the goals. And I think that often gets lost too. So in addition to catching and the positive reinforcement that we underwhelm, that connection is key. I think you're right. When you have an emerging leadership style or yours is different, letting others know so they and how you perceive it is important. I do. I agree. It's all about communication and mutual understanding. You also mention in the book, the three P's of power. I think it's personal power, professional power, and position power. What do each of these three mean and how do they affect our career success? Well, when I was a young lieutenant, so much happened to me when I was young. (laughs) I was on a ship and trying to manage and lead people. And I came to my boss one day and said, I'm having a problem with this task I'm trying to assign and how to best relate to the more junior person I was tasking who was not happy with the assignment. And he looked at me and he said, Sandy, there are three kinds of power and you need to learn how to use them if you want to succeed. There's personal power, professional power, and position power. And if you're going to succeed, you need to rely on the first two and lean on the last one, position power, only when you absolutely have to. And a lot of times, those of us, wherever we're serving and working, it's tempting to go right to whatever kind of position you might have for position power and use that as your authority. And I would offer that real leadership isn't about authority. It's about understanding your people and using other kinds of power to encourage them to desire to follow you, not like a carrot, not to hammer them into following you with a stick. So in my mind, personal power is all about your emotional intelligence level, how you relate to other people, how well you understand yourself so that when you present as a leader, you are sensitive to the needs of other people and you understand, you learn what motivates them and you want to compel them to follow you because they desire to, because they respect you. And that leads into professional power, which is what you know and how you present yourself. And I'm looking back, because when I was young, I didn't know all these things. I tried every day to build trust and earn respect. At the time, like I said, I wasn't sure that I was doing that deliberately, but building trust and earning respect every day based on what you know and how good you are at your job. So you come in and you prepare yourself to do the job. You're ready to do it. You're hardworking. You present yourself properly given the circumstances, and that earns you respect and builds trust with your people. And I'll give you an example of of that. I was reporting to a ship and I was a little more senior by this time in my career as a mid-grade person, maybe approaching senior level, but still mid-grade. And I had never sailed on this class of a cutter before. So I reported aboard as my first day of getting underway on the ship. So maybe a week or so after I reported aboard, the ship had been in port. We're going to get underway now. It's a 210-foot cutter. I'm the only woman, or maybe there was one other junior woman out of 75 people on the crew, the first executive officer they'd ever had a sign that was a woman there. So that's a second in command. So normally the second in command doesn't drive the ship. They watch what's going on. They direct efforts. So when we started to go to our underway stations to get the ship underway, I'm up on the bridge or the pilot house of the ship where the ship is driven, so to speak. And my commanding officer, the person in charge of the ship is there with me. And I'm expecting to watch this first time we get the ship underway, learn how things are done on this ship. It's my first time. Instead, my commanding officer turns to me and says, Lieutenant Commander Stowes, why don't you get us underway today? (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I don't even know, you know, where the throttle is. (laughs) Right. 
Was he testing or did he think you knew it? Well, so (laughs) I got the ship underway. It worked out well. And he told me afterwards, he says, look, I put you on the spot. But he says, Mm -hmm. I wanted you to be able to show the crew of all men that you was a woman in charge of them as the executive officer, that you were professionally competent to do the job, Mm. that they never had Mm. to say, well, she's a woman. She's probably here just because she's a woman. She probably can't even drive the ship. So he laid that to rest right away. And sure, it was really out of my comfort zone to be told in front of the whole crew on the bridge there that I was getting the ship underway, not being confident at all. But I had the competence. I'd been at sea eight Mm. years before that, Mm. different times, different kinds of ships. But he actually did me a favor. He helped me to demonstrate my professional competence. I never had to lean on my position power, hardly ever in my career, And so I would offer that as a lesson in the three P's Mm -hmm. of power. Mm -hmm. Make sure you spend all your time building up your personal power and you can increase your emotional intelligence. You can increase your professionalism, your competence, how you present yourself. You can build trust and earn respect. The position power you have that comes with time and with rank, you should be so respectful of that and go to it only when you have to in the most arduous of situations. It sounds like it really also solidified your confidence, which is key. And I think sometimes for some senior folks, male, female, all, confidence lags competence at times. And we need we need to really, you know, sort of build that. It's such an important component of success. I really agree. And I can speak from the heart on that one because for whatever reason, I from a a young age, had a lack of confidence. And I don't know why. I was an introvert, but that doesn't necessarily correlate. But it certainly complicates it when you're an introvert and you have a lack of self-confidence. And I had to work on that. And I had to work on believing in myself. And it wasn't easy for me. And I ended up believing in myself after I started the journey when I was an ensign. And when I was on my first ship coming out of the Coast Guard Academy, I was an icebreaker sailing to Antarctica. How exciting. And I was excited to get qualified up on the bridge of that ship so I could drive the ship. But I wasn't earning my qualification even after weeks of training and preparation. And my boss, he finally said to me one day, he said, I need you to stand on the bridge of that ship and bark orders like John Wayne with a six gun in each hand. But I wasn't me. I was never going to be John Wayne barking orders. Mm -hmm. I was going to be the person who used my personal power to ask the other crew members who were working for me to go make their round about the decks of the ship, to bring the rudder to right fall. I didn't need to bark an order like John Wayne. And I think eventually... I realized that I tried to be John Wayne, failed miserably. (laughs) And my boss also realized that I wasn't John Wayne, but I was competent in getting the job done. And he finally realized he had no excuse but to qualify me. And then I realized, hey, I don't have to try to be John Wayne or for somebody else who might be listening to be anybody that somebody else thinks I should be. I should be true to myself and I should look inward and find my strengths and go to them, not try to look outward to somebody else and try to copy who somebody else is. That's artificial. And I know there's a lot of talk about authentic leadership and being an authentic person nowadays. I like to use the word genuine more because be who you genuinely are inside. Don't try to be somebody else and you'll develop more self-confidence. Were people surprised throughout, you know, given what you've done through your whole journey that you would say that you struggled a little with confidence. That seems surprising. It does, especially now, 40 years on, retired. It's easy to be more confident when you're standing on top. So I started out 40, well, more than 40 years ago now, but at the beginning of my career, of course I wasn't where I am now. You hear people like me come on these podcasts and talk about how we succeeded. Well, we didn't start out where we're sitting now speaking Mm -hmm. with a podcast host. We started out in the same place of of lack of competence and confidence. 
but we took it one day at a time and we learned something new every day, something new every day, all the way up to a year, 365 new things. And then multiply that by a few years, Mm -hmm. then change jobs, learn at an exponential level, learn leadership, do lifelong learning. And so you build, build, build your base until you have so many tools in your tool bag and you've got so much experience to draw on that now you find yourself teaching and mentoring others because you've developed that confidence. Mm. But it takes a long time. And still at core, I'm an introvert and still at core can question my own confidence at times, even after all these years, Mm -hmm. because it's an inherent personality trait. But I've learned to understand that and accept that about myself and not think that I'm a lesser leader because of it. Mm -hmm. So how do you use those qualities that you wish you kind of wish you could change to your benefit instead of beating yourself up about, oh, I'm an unconfident. How can I be a leader if I still have that trait? Well, you can because you can empathize better, maybe. So where can you find the power even in your weaknesses And where can you find the way to blend your weaknesses with your strengths to overall become a more powerful leader? You mentioned also, it doesn't come also without, you know, experiencing some fumbled balls or some bruises or some hard lessons. And especially in turbulent times, you know, being a leader means you've got to overcome a lot of obstacles, a lot of fears. Any tips you have for preparing for sort of the life challenges along the journey? Everyone has to look at that, not just a five-year look ahead for what goals you might have, where you sit right now, the next level up, do I start a family? You should be looking ahead. And we had a great speaker when I was at the Coast Guard Academy. We brought this retired admiral from the Colombian Navy and a wise man with a great perspective. And he challenged my cadets who were all between 18 and 22 years old, where do you want to be when you're 50 years old? And I'm not sure anybody had asked them that before because most of the time people who are mentoring or teaching younger students and younger people are asking them, what are you doing next? What do you, you know, look ahead a couple of years and, but you need to look at the longer term. So what's your destination? What's your legacy looking like? Where do you want to be when you're an older person? Do you want to have had a family and raised kids? Do you want to have a doctoral degree? Do you want to be at the top of your organization? Do you want to be an expert and kind of stay at the middle level because you like doing the job that's hands-on every day? So you have to struggle with that so you can have some self-discovery so you can be comfortable with your passion and purpose. And I think not enough people do that. They're confused and they leave a job. They bleed off at the middle level, maybe because they're unhappy. They think they can find success and satisfaction somewhere else instead of trying to grow where they're planted, which isn't always the worst idea. The grass isn't always greener. Hmm. So I do think that people need to look out further than they're accustomed to. And I think that people need to take the perspective that Cervantes said through Don Quixote that the road is better than the inn. In other words, the journey of life is more important than the destination. (laughs) So if you're just looking at getting somewhere, getting the next promotion, getting married, getting whatever, you're missing out on the day-to-day failures and successes that make life the beautiful patchwork that it is. And every one of those days should be celebrated, regardless of the small failures or the small successes that make them up along that road to the end or that journey of life. And too many people are unhappy with the days and the weeks that go by because nothing big happens. But very few of us have big, huge failures or great big successes. Most of us have a day-to-day battle rhythm of small failures and small successes, but we don't take time to be thankful for them or to celebrate them, or we beat ourselves up for the small failures. And people need to celebrate the successes and write a gratitude journal every day. I put three things every night in my gratitude journal, and I try not to repeat them. (laughs) Did you always do that? Or is that more recent? No, I learned that. When I was on a ship at about the middle level, I was commanding a ship, mid-grade level of an organization. 
and it was a 210 foot ship. So I moved up from the executive officer on this one ship to a couple of years later, I was commanding the same kind of ship and I was stressed and it was a lot of burden to bear, so to speak, along with the privilege of command. Everybody's life is in your hands. You get underway in the storms at sea and we're doing patrols off of New York City post 9-11. So a lot of arduous duty. And I went to a retreat at a health spa and we had a motivational speaker come and talk about gratitude. And this is about 20 years ago. This person told us, hey, sit down every night and write down some things you're grateful for, but make sure you don't repeat them. So every night it can't just become rote. Where's my family, my health. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I find myself being thankful for a spider's web that I see that's just a work of art, you know, and I, I see that beauty in my mind and it fills my mind with the, the wonders of nature and fascination as opposed to the down that I could feel from being disaffected, outraged, unhappy because I failed somewhere or I think somebody else failed me. So if you're grateful, it counterbalances the negativity that can come from failing where you feel like you let yourself down or someone else let you down. You are clearly, you know, a values-driven person. And how have you continued to sort of pivot and pursue all the experiences that you did and stay true to your values or your passion and purpose? So my values were shaped early in my life. My personal core values taught to me by my parents were honesty, <laughs> humility. You keep hearing me talk about humility. I think it's so important because I've seen so many people fall, so many mm-hmm. leaders fall because of hubris mm-hmm. and more hard work and perseverance. So those four are my personal core values. And when I came into the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard has another set of core values, honor, respect, and devotion to duty. So your core values in my mind are constant. But what can change is your passion and purpose. And I think that my passion and purpose has changed several times over the course of my career. And it's come at inflection points. And all of us should have these inflection points in our life. We need to be ready to notice them and respond to them, not just let them pass where an opportunity passes or to frustrate us because we don't notice and acknowledge the inflection point. I'll give you an example. I'd been 12 years at sea in the Coast Guard, so I was a more senior officer, but still in the lower lower range of senior. So been in about 20, 21 years, 22 maybe, in the Coast Guard. And the time came for me to put in my request for assignments. You get to choose, ask for where you want to go in the Coast Guard. Every several years, you change, you rotate jobs. And I've been rotating with my career path being afloat, going to sea on ships. You go to sea on ships for two years, you come back for a two or three year tour ashore. So after 12 years of sea duty, my time came again to go to the next bigger cutter. And I said to myself, wow, I just, something about that. I love being at sea. So why is it not, why am I not jumping at this? Why am I hesitating? And I thought, what is it that I really love about being at sea? And I thought, well, it's got to be the excitement, the stars at night, the sunrises, the sunsets, the mission. And it came to me, no, it was the people. It was looking at the people on deck and looking at a brand new crew member who just reported aboard before you got underway. And now that hesitant, shy new crew member is after a few weeks at sea, pulling on a line with some confidence, you can hear them shouting out acknowledgement of the commands they're receiving and the development of young people as budding leaders of character. Wow, that's what really motivates me now, 20 years into my career. I was motivated by something else for a different passion and purpose while I entered, but now I'm gonna go and ask to command our boot camp, our Coast Guard Recruit Training Center in Cape May, New Jersey. And that was a shore assignment. And I was in charge of the entire training program for new recruits coming into the Coast Guard. And I asked for that job and was privileged to receive it. And it was just a revelation to me that I've made the right decision. And it was hard saying no to continuing my career at sea. I actually kind of sobbed when I wrote my email into the person running that program and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn down going back to sea and I'm going to take a different course, but I was never happier. And it set me on my career track to go and command the Coast Guard Academy 
That never would have happened if I hadn't commanded the recruit training for enlisted people. So it set me on a whole new passion and purpose, but still within the construct of the Coast Guard. So being willing to see when you're conflicted and pursue it and examine yourself so you can make wise choices that are better for both you and your family and your and your coworkers. Sandy, you had said in the book as well that there can be a leaky pipeline for women and people of color and leadership. What does this mean and what can we do about it? I, I think, you know, 40 years, I'm in my career, 30 years. And while we clearly have seen so many advances in terms of the rich pipeline of talent being recognized and leveraged, we still are woefully behind still in all organizations in that regard. Your thoughts on that? Right about the mid-level of an organization or a company is when you see people bleeding out for whatever reason. And there's, I think, two buckets of reasons for that. First of all, the people at the middle level are people who are probably in their late 20s to early 30s, that range. And they have been trained. They've got skills, knowledge, skills, and ability. They've probably developed their leadership by now. And they're highly desirable. They're also at the point where they're wondering what the next step in their career should be. It's not too late to jump to something new because if you stay so long in a certain career, you might feel like you have to stay longer to get tenure and all. So I want to talk about this from the personal side of the employee and from the organization side. So the leaky pipeline, it's challenging for organizations. It can be challenging for people too, because they might jump out for the wrong reasons. So I think those people at the middle level need to do some self-reflection they need to recognize the power they've got in the middle of the organization. They really can influence programs and policy more so, of course, than the junior people and even more so than senior people. I know when I got more senior in the Coast Guard, I was hands off to some extent. You have to let your people do their job. You can't use what we call them in the Coast Guard, the thousand mile screwdriver where you're trying to influence what somebody's doing Hmm. down at the middle level. So there's a lot of power in there to actually produce program and policy recommendations that are tabled up for senior people to sign. And if they're done well, people like a senior person like I was would sign it. So don't think because you're in the middle, you're invisible. You can be in the most powerful place in your organization, but you have to recognize that and seek that power. Wield your influence to make things better. And then not just yourself, So look for someone else to mentor. So reach down your hand and find somebody to bring up into the middle ranks. And then you find more satisfaction with your job. And don't be so tempted to look at where somebody else might be offering a better salary. Because sometimes there's perks and salaries that are offered by corporations who can pay more. And we saw this a lot in the Coast Guard and the military. You do a lot in the services to train people, make them leaders of character, and then Big companies with lots of money to offer come and pick them away, especially the women and minorities. They're especially highly sought after. (laughs) So Mm. we find that they leave at a higher rate than their white male counterparts, but it's not necessarily, in many cases, not at all because of the organization not having a good culture and workplace climate. It's because there's many offers out there that they're seeking. So I think individual employees need to really look at whether it's an offer that's going to suck them away to greener pastures that might not give them the job satisfaction they've got where they are. They've got to look at what their responsibilities are for creating the workplace and the achieving satisfaction that they need. Now for the employer, the organization or company, they need to really focus on the organization's values and mission and unify everybody around that shared purpose that's bigger than themselves. And that's powerful People want to be part of a team. They want to be part of an organization they're proud of. So making sure that those core values on the company's mission incites a sense of excitement for the purpose, unify people around that and reward both individuals and the team, not just individuals for their hard work, but look at team efforts so that you reward the people who who are leading as a team. And then if you've got a workplace that's got that kind of a culture 
and climate where there's mutual respect, you're trying to help each other in addition to performing at your best, there's energy and people are going to be loath to leave that kind of a culture that's based in respect where the bosses are looking to understand their people so they know how to motivate them, give them opportunities that match their desires, not just a broad-based, here's something for you all, and really lead from personal understanding of the people that they're that they're responsible for to try to give those people the satisfaction they're looking for to stay with the company. So there's a lot of responsibility, both for the employees and the supervisors. Fantastic. Sandy, it's still a challenge for so many to live what you'd maybe call an integrated life. So where work isn't so dominant and you try to squeeze in everything else. And I believe that you've you've got a number of hobbies and life interests and like spending time with your family. Any tips at all that you've learned along the way around how to try to strike that balance, if you will, but to live a more integrated life? Absolutely. Leading in uncharted waters, which is part of the title of my book, means that everybody's going to face challenges. It's how you meet the challenges that determine whether you succeed or fail. So there's not going to be, like I said, a level playing field, waters where everything's charted out for you, every Mm -hmm. course change. You're going to have to find your own way on that journey to the destination that is your what you project is what you want to be when you're 50 years old, your legacy. So here's what I would say, a couple of ideas there. You're not going to be able to avoid the challenges and you want to face them. So you've got to learn how to do what I call the three A's, adapt, adjust, and be agile. And that will help you fit into a new environment, overcome obstacles, navigate through this uncharted water. So You've got to enter a new situation and and look around and adapt so that you can manage to understand where you need to fit in. Adjust then because you're not going to be completely ready for the obstacle or the new situation you meet. And then become agile so that you can continually maneuver to avoid or overcome the obstacles. So I think adapting, adjusting, and being agile are very important words. And oftentimes we're looking at it from a different perspective. We're like, what can the company do for us? We want them to clear the decks so that everything's easy for us when we come in. Why should we have to adapt or adjust? We should come in as our authentic selves and the company should cater to us. No, I think you need to do your part. If you're going to overcome those obstacles, take advantage of them and turn them into opportunities So you really have to create a mental mindset of seeing the obstacles of a new job or a challenge at work. Look for where there's an opportunity to seize in that. And there's never an obstacle prevented that doesn't have an opportunity. There's never a crisis that hits you that's not just filled with opportunities waiting to be seized. If you're bold enough and willing to take the risk that it would take to dive in there and find those opportunities. So I always say, choose fortitude over fragility, you know, choose excellence over excuses, look for the strong words and look for where you can exercise personal agency to shape your own fate. I think that's so important in a society where you hear more and more and more about trying to find a place where people open their arms to you and you're welcomed in and everything stops, drops for your needs that's probably not the way you're going to achieve your full satisfaction and full potential or do the best job for your employer either. That's brilliant. I so agree with you. Do you see much change as you're back at the academy? Do you, maybe you saw some along the way, but as you're there now, do you see much in the, maybe the core stayed the same, but maybe is it a different style of leadership being embraced? Does it look and feel different in any way to you? Absolutely, because we're more than 40 years on from when I entered. And what I see when I go back to the academy mirrors the 40 years (laughs) of advancement in our society. So it's completely as it should be. Everything changes in life. Every day, every year, there's change. And the Coast Guard Academy, all the service academies are still teaching how to lead with character. The mission is still the same as to develop leaders of character and service to our nation. 
how we do it? Is it a little bit different? Are the students coming in a little bit different than we were? Most of the people I talk to who are my age say, wow, I would never get in if I was applying today because mm. the cadets are so smart. They know so much and they are. They're, they're far more prepared in so many ways than we were 40 years ago. So there's a lot of differences that you see. And I would say it's, it's all good. The future of America is very bright. If you look at our young people, they know the importance of hard work and perseverance. And they're looking for ways to prove themselves as individuals and as teams. And if their parents are helicopter parents or snowplow parents, Mm -hmm. that's only strengthening their resolve to see what they can do on their own. That's what I hope so. (laughs) It might be because we're getting those kind of young people at the service academies that want to break free from, you know, oversight and be Mm -hmm. their own Mm -hmm. man or woman, see Mm -hmm. what they can achieve as an individual and as a team. Fantastic. Sandy, what's a piece of career advice, maybe something that has stayed with you throughout your career or something you'd like to share with us? I'm going to go to something really simple. There's a lot of things you can share in a long career like I've had. I say, do your very best at every task you're assigned. (laughs) And I always believe that. But last night, I picked up a new book called Legacy. It's about the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And the book starts out talking about how this winning rugby team after a big win goes to the locker room and then the team captain will pick up a broom and start sweeping the locker room down. And it's part of what they do to keep humble. No task is too small just because you get big and important doing the best you can at the smallest task you're assigned instead of saying, eh, I'm going to jump ship at the mid grade level here to another company offering me a little more money and a chance for some more bigger responsibility because I don't want to do these littler jobs. Well, the littler jobs prepare you. They teach you humility. They develop your character. If you skip all the little jobs that don't seem worth it, you're not going to be prepared to do the big jobs. And you're going to be a leader filled with hubris and overconfidence. So that's my lesson is do your very best at every job that you're offered and succeed at that job. And you will get those bigger jobs and you will have earned them. Sandy, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this really rich conversation. You shared with us so genuinely many, many nuggets and insights from your amazing career journey, but also your just personal leadership. Thank you so much. And we really look forward to seeing your book in June. Thank you so much for having me on this episode. It's been my honor. Thank you, Sandy. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon.